Hey Conjurers, I'm Sham. And I'm Steph. In 2004, most Americans were focused on the conviction of Scott Peterson for the murder of his wife and unborn child. News stations were constantly dropping new developments to keep up with the public's interest. What wasn't talked about was that there was an even stranger, more shocking case happening less than two hours south of Modesto. The case I want to talk about today covers some very sensitive and controversial topics like polygamy, incest, and domestic abuse that led to the horrific murder of an innocent family. In the Golden State lies the city of Fresno, ranking number seven in agriculture due to most of it being covered in farmland that produces profitable crops like grapes, almonds, tomatoes, and oranges. Though the scenery may be breathtaking in the more rural areas, according to ABC 30, as of 2021, Fresno has the highest homicide rate out of its sister cities, including LA, San Diego, San Jose, and San Francisco, making it one of the worst places in the state to raise your children. In 2004, one Fresno family kept a thinly veiled secret that was about to be exposed. In the outside world, it was obvious that Marcus Wesson was not only the man of his household, but quite possibly the dictator. The Wessons were known to stay isolated from the rest of society, and when seen out by neighbors, his daughter and wife could always be seen walking directly behind him and avoided eye contact with anyone they crossed paths with. Aside from the awkward way they moved through society, they were also forced to wear dark robes while out with him. His neighbors were justifiably spooked by this 400-pound man with his row of slaves behind him. It was safe to assume that Marcus was a domineering and manipulative person who ruled his family by isolating them from humans outside of the family and requiring total devotion. Okay, you don't just decide to be a domineering dictator. Or was the community wrong about him? They always say don't judge a book by its cover, but in this case, the community was right on the ball. Okay, so what made him that way? Marcus Wesson was born on August 22nd of 1946 in Kansas to Benjamin and Carrie Wesson. He came up in a very religious household and was raised as a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. His father was a known alcoholic and child abuser who made the choice to abandon Marcus early in his childhood. This only encouraged his mother to keep her focus and the three children that came after Marcus's focus on the Book of God growing up. The religion is similar to other Christian-based religions. However, Seventh-day Adventists believe that after death, a person stays in their unconscious state until they are awakened by God only at the time of the second advent. According to people who grew up with Marcus, he was highly eccentric and moderately intelligent, often expressing himself with a large vocabulary and flowery language. His personality was known to have an unusual influence on people he came in contact with throughout his life. Even though he was intelligent, he would eventually decide to drop out of high school and join the United States Army, serving for two years between 1966 and 1968. During his time in the military, he was sent to Europe to work as a medical orderly, assisting with patients' daily living activities like dressing and bathing and transporting patients from one place to another. After leaving the Army, now in his 20s, Marcus made his way to San Jose, where he found room and board with a Hispanic woman who lived next door to his parents, named Rosemary Maytorina. Rosemary was in her 30s and had several children. In 1971, she and Marcus had a son together named Adrian. Four years later, Marcus married Rosemary's daughter, Elizabeth, who was 14 years old at the time, while he was 27. 
Over the next 16 years, Marcus would father 10 children with Elizabeth, while simultaneously putting Elizabeth's sister, named after her mother Rosemary, under his spell. Rosemary had seven children who were being physically abused and molested in their own home, so she decided it was best if the children went to live with Elizabeth and Marcus in 1986. I'm sorry, what? He starts living with a neighbor of his parents and then runs off and marries her 14-year-old daughter? He's a predator! As if this isn't bad enough, it only gets worse. This guy will never be satisfied. Oh, great. So now this child molester has his own children and seven other children all living in his house. That's a recipe for disaster. That also just sounds like a lot of people to have in one house. Yeah, this launched their household from 12 to 19 overnight, causing more financial issues than they were prepared for. Due to Marcus not being able to keep a steady job that could also support his wife and children, they relied heavily on welfare to keep their house afloat. For food, he and his family would search through dumpsters at local fast food restaurants. They were also forced to live in various unusual locations, like a 26-foot boat in Santa Cruz. Marcus went to jail for fraud in 1990 for not listing the boat they lived on to the welfare office. Once he was out, the family found a trailer in the Santa Cruz Mountains to live, and it had no running water. Next, they moved to a tugboat in Marin County, and then some abandoned school buses. In every sense of the word, this family was homeless. Once Elizabeth and Marcus's children were old enough to work, they used their money to buy a small house in Fresno. As far as education goes, none of the 19 children attended public school. Marcus actually taught them personally from home using textbook flashcards and a made-up version of Christianity inspired by David Koresh, the infamous cult leader from Waco, Texas of 1993. Marcus described himself as Jesus Christ and the police as Satan. He convinced his children and nieces and nephews that it was important that they make children of the Lord. Oh, geez. This guy is clearly nuts. I mean, his role model was the infamous David Koresh. That should tell us all we need to know. (laughs) He clearly shouldn't be teaching children anything. Given how old Elizabeth was when he married her, he shouldn't even be around children at all. And this was only the beginning of Marcus's twisted morals. One day he bought 10 coffins preparing for a massacre. He told his niece and daughter that if anyone ever tried to betray or break up the family, both of them were to kill anyone who got in their way. He called them his strong soldiers. During this time, he was making his way into the beds of all of his nieces and daughters, as young as the age of eight years old. This molestation eventually escalated into marriage by a home ceremony where they placed their hands on the Bible and repeated vows. He did this with three of his nieces and two of his daughters, who would have his children soon after. Surprisingly, Elizabeth encouraged these unions to the girls and was even said to have even persuaded one of them to come back home after running away as a teenager to raise the son she had with Marcus. If the teenage girls were ever to be seen talking to boys, they would be beaten by a jealous and possessive Marcus with baseball bats and sticks. The boys in the family were also subjected to regular beatings by their uncle and father. Even though that home was filled with traumatic memories, members of the family also remember Marcus entertaining them with plays, concerts, and contests, like the Ugly Contest, which consisted of the children competing with who could dress up as ugly as possible. Once they reached adulthood, all the boys moved out of the home, and most of the girls did too. 
However, Marcus's daughters, Sabrina, Elizabeth, and his niece, Rosa, stayed home to help support the family financially and raise the children they had with him. Oh, my God. This guy is sick. Abusing and forcing these little girls into his sick, twisted fantasy is disgusting enough. But to make it even worse, these are his own daughters and nieces. I can't even imagine the horrific childhood they endured. And it's sad because everything that happened to them was probably normalized. Like, there was literally no one to tell them it was wrong. It sounds like a lot of his victims did eventually get away once they grew up. I have a feeling it gets worse, though. Oh, it always does. On March 12th of 2004, two of Marcus's nieces, Ruby Ortez and Sofina Solorio, paid a visit to the family's Fresno home. During this visit, they demanded the couple hand over their children. Marcus had promised to stop molesting his daughters and nieces when Ruby and Safina left their kids behind, but it was clear he would never stop. Marcus and Elizabeth refused as they spat hurtful names at the women, such as whores, Judas, and Lucifer. With little success to get their children on their own, the women left the property and returned with police by their side. Hoping that having some form of authority with them would spook the Wessons into handing over their children they came for. Upon returning, police officers ordered Marcus to come out, but he didn't. During the 80-minute standoff, police reached out to the state's attorney to see if they can get a warrant to enter the building, but they were told they had no legal right to go in. This is when Marcus's niece and wife, Rosa, along with Elizabeth, came running out of the door in a panic, shouting to officers that Marcus had a gun. It didn't take long after that for Marcus to come walking out covered in blood ready to surrender himself. After arresting him, the SWAT team made their way into the home, not knowing what to expect. Laying on the ground in a pile of bloody clothing were the nine bodies of Marcus's children. From what authorities could see, all of them had been shot in one eye, resulting in their death. The victims ranged from one years old to 25 years old, two of them being Marcus's daughters, Sabrina and Elizabeth, the other seven being the children of his daughters and nieces, Eight-year-old Elabel, seven-year-old Ivev, seven-year-old Jonathan, four-year-old Ethan, two-year-old Sedona, two-year-old Marshy, and one-year-old Jeva. In one of the rooms were ten coffins lined up against the wall. The scene they walked into traumatized authorities, ultimately leading to administrative leave for a majority of the professionals. During the evidence collecting that evening, six police chaplains could be seen entering the building to soothe the police officers working on the scene. During this time, they would find the gun that killed the victims under the oldest Sabrina's body and no gun residue on Marcus. Even though she had been the one to pull the trigger, there was no doubt in anyone's mind that it was under the influence of Marcus's demands. Yeah, I imagine that would be terribly traumatizing to witness. All of those poor babies were abused all of their lives and then murdered rather than set free. I used to think I could handle being a crime scene investigator, but then I realized I could only stomach talking about it. I'm not being about it. (laughs) (laughs) Me too, girl. Me too. (laughs) Stuff will take us deeper into the investigation after this short break. During the early days of the investigation, Marcus remained in custody with his bail set at $9 million. He was said to have remained calm and cooperated with investigators. His arraignment was set for five days later on March 17th. Though it was clear he was the one calling all of the shots, the investigators were not ruling out that more than one person was involved. 
According to CNN News, toxicology tests were run on all of the victims to see whether or not they were drugged. Those came back negative, so it was clear this dysfunctional family was driven by a cult structure created and nurtured by Marcus, with the help of his wife Elizabeth. Marcus's oldest son, Dorian, who was 29 years old at the time of the murders, actually backed his dad up. He told the Fresno Bee that it doesn't seem like him to do it, and I don't think he's entirely responsible, end quote. Dorian didn't believe his father was capable of killing children and thinks he would have put a stop to anyone in the household having those thoughts. He even went as far as to place some of the blame on his sisters, stating that they had artificial inseminations, and two of the seven children that were murdered were actually fathered by men other than his father. Others didn't share the same opinion, though. Teresa Solorio, the sister-in-law of Marcus, told Fresno B. she believed he had evil tendencies and was nothing short of controlling. She believes that he killed those children with the mindset of, if I can't have them, nobody can. That was the ultimate way to control their lives, even down to controlling whether they lived or died. She also backed up the two women that had left Marcus, Sofiana and Ruby, saying that their life was filled with sexual abuse and that they were able to find strength to leave that situation, but had no choice but to leave their children behind. His son protecting his dad had to come from a place of fear and manipulation. He had to endure his whole life. When you're raised in that kind of environment, I'm sure it's hard to undo the mental programming of your abuser. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure he had more people against him than with him anyways. Yeah, but perhaps the most shocking person to speak out was Marcus's mother, Carrie. She described the son she knew to KFSN News as a bright, intelligent child who loved animals stating that he grew up in a household that avoided dances, were vegetarians, and dressed modestly amongst peers. She said, and I quote, The Marcus Wesson on TV I don't recognize. That's not my son. This is a Christian family. This is not a cult. End quote. On March 22nd, the police released all of the death certificates for the nine victims, stating their cause of death as unique and consistent with immediate perforation of the brain caused by a gunshot wound to the face. One victim, eight-year-old Illabel, died from a contusion of the brain after being shot in the face. Dorian's statement about some of his nieces and nephews was, of course, tossed out. According to DNA, all seven were indeed fathered by Marcus. Shortly after the death certificates were released, they were all cremated at Belmont Memorial Park in Fresno, and their ashes returned to their families. The community's support was overwhelming, with donations directed toward the victims' families, and a large memorial could be seen outside the crime scene. I mean, it was very obvious all those kids were his. I mean, at what point would the girls have the privacy to even meet another man with that freak around? And the story he coached into all of his children about artificial insemination is insane. As if a doctor would impregnate a child on purpose. Yeah, that's legal nowhere, buddy. So let's talk about the trial. While in jail awaiting trial, Marcus initially decided to refuse a criminal attorney to assist with his case, preventing his case from moving forward. Guards in the jail had to watch him 24-7, and he was put in total isolation as well as having no contact with his surviving family members. By April 7th, more than 33 sexual abuse charges had been filed against Marcus. During this time behind bars, Marcus wrote letters to a judge in Santa Cruz, which were over 80 pages long. 
Based on these letters, Marcus felt wronged by the system and said it was completely against him. He even made a statement about his arrest for committing fraud back in 1990. According to KSBWTV, he wrote, I knew the welfare department illegally obtained the information because I, posing as the actor Richard Widmark, called the tax office because I wanted to find out why the boat was in my name instead of my wife's. For those that don't know, Richard Widmark was the murdering psychopath from the 1947 movie Kiss of Death. <laughs> okay, there are times the system is indeed against people, especially those of color. But this isn't one of those times, buddy. Exactly. The system is not intended to protect child molesters. If anything, he somehow got away with his crimes for far too long. He's clearly insane. Yeah. So prosecutors believed that Marcus was the one to pull the trigger and had the evidence to prove it. Witnesses took the stand, going deeper into his sexual allegations, claiming that he was molesting his daughters and nieces as young as five years old. And once they became pregnant, they were told to tell outsiders it was due to being artificially inseminated. Marcus returned to court on April 27th, where he was charged with nine counts of murder and 13 sexual assault counts for the rape and molestation of girls younger than 14 years old. Even with these charges, Marcus waived his rights to a speedy trial and pled not guilty to the murder charges. If convicted of the nine counts of murder, Marcus would be sentenced to death under California state law. He was placing the blame solely on his daughter, Sabrina. According to Marcus's lawyer, Pete Jones, the 22 caliber gun and hunting knife found at the scene was under her body and Sabrina was found with a gun wound in the eye that was shot in an upward direction. This could only mean that she not only took the life of her cousin, children, nieces, and nephews, but afterwards took her own life in a murder-suicide plot. This also supported the theory that the family had planned for things to happen this way. If someone tried to break them up, whether it be family or authorities. Remember, the older girls were told to act as soldiers and killed the children before killing themselves. Yeah, under her father's slash molester's demands. He probably had a knife mentally and physically to her throat while she was forced to pull the trigger on her loved ones. No doubt in my mind. What did they decide? The trial was set for June 21st, 2005. Four months after that horrific day that claimed the lives of nine Wesson family members. Following his trial, a jury of 12 deliberated for nine hours before unanimously deciding that Marcus pulled the trigger himself back in March. This came after listening to witnesses discussing the children being repeatedly coached to be ready to kill each other and themselves by Marcus if their clan was ever threatened. Prosecution also made it clear he had plenty of time to do the dirty work himself during his 80-minute standoff with police. The verdict read by the court clerk said the panelists concluded he fired the murder weapon. He was convicted with 23 counts, nine being first-degree murder, making him eligible for the death penalty, and 14 counts of raping and molestation of his underage daughters and nieces on June 27th. He deserves everything coming for him. Agreed. He is the absolute worst kind of monster. So, now that he's convicted, where are the remaining Wessons now? Well, even though some of the Wessons' surviving family members still stand by Marcus's proclaimed innocence and support him behind bars, others started to live a life doing their best to get away from the horrors their family name carries. 
Many say they suffer from humiliation and rejection from outsiders that are aware of the family's past. Back in 2009, Gypsy Wesson, who was 25 years old during her interview with the Fresno Bee, shared, and I quote, I wish with all my heart some days that I was somebody else, but I have to live with this the rest of my life. There are some good days and then there are some really bad days. People can be so low and so hurtful. Many see us as part of the evil and not victims struggling to recover, end quote. I'm not surprised they get backlash, but people need to understand that they're all victims too. Absolutely. Even those that grew up and still supported him were still victims. They had been brainwashed their entire lives. It's hard to come back from something like that. I mean, they'll need all the therapy in the world. So is anyone else that backed him still around? Well, Marcus's sons, who stood by their father following the murders, Adrian, Serafino, and Dorian, were able to admit three years later that their father was narcissistic, psychotic, and deluded. They discussed the punishments they endured at the hands of Marcus during their childhood, stating that their punishments would last up to 30 days. It included 62 hits a day spread out, 21 hits in the morning, 21 hits in the afternoon, 21 hits to end the day. Being children, they didn't know any better, thinking this was normal for them and all kids. They were born into cult life and kept from the outside world. That was the way life was supposed to be. Elizabeth and two of the daughters she shared with Marcus, Gypsy and Kiani, told ABC News that their father started touching them when they were eight years old. Following the murders, reporter Alicia Sofios interviewed the three women and decided she wanted to help them. She invited Elizabeth, Gypsy, and Kiani to live with her, and the women shared an apartment together. Gypsy would later have a daughter of her own, naming her Alicia in honor of the reporter, and Kiani would follow shortly after, having a daughter as well. Alicia was still close with the members of the family and released a book about the situation called Where Hope Begins. With this book, now 62-year-old Elizabeth hopes to start the healing process for herself and children. Marcus Wesson remains on death row at San Quentin Prison as of 2021. Children are so innocent and easily trusting of those around them, especially those closest to them. The adults in the Wesson family fail to protect these children, and though it's easy to blame them for everything, it seemed to be the result of generational trauma. Elizabeth learned at a young age that being sexually groomed as a teenager was okay, so she blindly followed what she thought was normal. But what was Marcus's excuse? other than being obsessed with cult leaders and having a desire to molest those most vulnerable. No matter who pulled the trigger on that fateful day, we can all agree that Marcus is responsible. Stop Child Predators, also known as SCP, brings together a team of policy experts, law enforcement officers, community leaders, and parents to launch state and federal campaigns informing lawmakers and the public about policy changes that will protect America's children from sexual predators. To advance their mission, they undertake a full-service approach, crafting legislation, building coalitions, executing robust advocacy campaigns, and operating educational programs. This collective effort has enabled SCP to pass their model legislation in 46 states. For more information, call 202 248 7052 
or visit www.stopchildrenpredators.org. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode was done by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Alina. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week. Today, I want to try something a little different. I want to discuss red flags for spotting a child predator. A few things you want to look out for in male and female adults are the following. It could be someone who spends more time with children than adults or peers. They may even come off as immature and childish. Someone who is overly affectionate and playful with children, like hugging, tickling, wrestling, holding, or having a child sit on their lap. They could have a favorite child they seem to spend time with, disregards to no, stop, or other efforts from a child to avoid physical contact. Someone who seems to stare or has periods of watching a child. Or someone that communicates with a child in private via social media, text message, or email. For even more red flags, I suggest visiting a website called themamabeareffect.org. This is so important. More often than not, it's someone close to the family or child that is the predator. It's vital to keep an eye out for red flags, no matter where they might come from. Okay, Conjurers, we'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, stay vigilant, Conjurers. Conjurers.